think about these things is that we're creating tools for communities. I don't believe that there's a single solution that somehow becomes Web3, right? Decentralization is an emergent property of a larger system. And so what I work on is helping people to kind of re-decentralize the internet. And that means, you know, people having more websites and web rings and uh, stuff that made the internet cool back in, in I don't know, 2005, um, but with a better user experience uh, that allows people who are perhaps less technical to still participate um, and, and get the great experience that they're used to. Um, I would encourage people to think about how technology has been used for or against uh, the people who are the most vulnerable in their population um, and to recognize that very often uh, things that you see happen to people that are less well off than you will eventually roll upstream. Welcome to Biddle Crypto. And today I have a special guest, Amber Balde, and uh, she is a very unique person. I've been trying to chase her to uh, be on the show. And today is the day she's finally here. Uh, she's uh, just to give a little bit of background about her. Uh, she's a leading voice um, in decentralized technology. She's also has has been featured in uh, Fortune 40 Under 40 uh, and quoted several times in New York Times at Technology Week and um, uh, for her groundbreaking work. And uh, you know, she's also well known to be the you know the whisperer between crypto and the Wall Street. So hello, Amber. Thanks for coming on Biddle Crypto. Hi, thanks for having me. So Amber, um, I uh, would uh, just want to know for, for just to give reference to our audiences in India, uh, just a little bit about uh, your background um, and how you ended up in, um, you know, decentralized applications, uh, privacy. Yeah, well, I started my career um, as kind of accidentally as a developer, um, I actually started in operations working at a, a trading um, an kind of institutional research boutique that had a trading desk. And I was initially doing a variety of, you know, wearing a bunch of hats and doing spreadsheet things for them. And uh, the systems were kind of broken. So I ended up building them new ones. So that was how I accidentally became a developer and then um, moved on to working at larger institutions. And eventually I was at a hedge fund and then JP Morgan, um, mostly just building trading platforms. Uh, when the, you know, I found out that several of my favorite engineers were moving over to um, this new thing called the new product development team. And at that time, I had kind of transitioned uh, more into um, product role. I did some infosec stuff for a while. So, uh, you know, it was just, it, it was a nice confluence of events to get to move over there and, and hang out with the cool kids that got to get security exceptions for all their work and play with <laughs> machine learning and blockchain and all that stuff. And so that's kind of how I ended up there. Wow. That's a really uh, unique in terms of like interdisciplinary and how, you know, different, um, areas you have ch touched upon in your career. Fantastic. I, I think that's why probably it gives you like a more broader view of the space. So in follow-up to that, uh, uh, you know, what is your sort of view on, um, and this is perhaps like a bigger question and a view on general view on privacy and where this new uh, sort of web is going. I wouldn't even call it web 3.0 because it's so buzzwordy these days. But just in general, the vision uh, of where do you see it? And I know, you know, before um, 
before going into uh, you know with this um, this interview i had done some preparation and saw that you were also on a board of zcash uh, and so would i i would also like you to comment on the you know if you if you if you want to about the current revolution of uh, uh, you know somebody very famous who's who's contributed to zcash <laughs> well, I, yeah, I'm on the, the board of the Zcash Foundation, which is the nonprofit entity that's not the, the company that initially uh, released the currency. So the mandate of the Zcash Foundation is a little more broad and is to um, support tools for privacy online, which generally is, you know, focused on financial privacy, but an even larger mandate just around um uh, digital privacy. And so we've worked with some um, other organizations like Tor. I think we have a lot of crossover with the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Um, but it uh, that organization is pretty aligned with my um, very kind of long standing roots in the, I guess what you would call hacker community at this point, but what I kind of just called like early people on the internet. Um, where, you know, there, the early cypherpunk movement, which was about empowering people to create open systems that were still safe and secure, right? Because you're, you're communicating over long distances, but you only want to communicate with the intended person at the other end of the line. Um, and that's that's been a, a problem since the beginning of online communication, you know? And uh, so I've been around advocates for strong cryptography, of which Zuko Wilcox is one of the, the folks that I know. He was the, one of the original kind of folks who brought uh, Zcash to market. Um, I knew him back when, you know, we were just at hacker conferences together and he was running least authority. So, um, which was a computer security company that still exists. <laughs> so, uh, so my, my roots go back to that. And I think that um, that's how I continue to frame the the problems worth working on is, you know, more and more our real life or our, our physical life is digital. Uh, there's no such thing as IRL anymore. Online is IRL. And so we need to um, protect ourselves and our communities um, and demand accountability and transparency from the corporations and the governments and everybody else who's online. And part of that is um, strong mandates around and respect for privacy. God, yeah, that's a that's a very rich uh, history that you're a part of. And so, uh, do you see that? Uh, I, I know it's it's a it's a um, there's a lot of factors that go into this, and it's not a simple answer. Uh, the future of what we are calling is Web three is like privacy centric, um, or it's 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 a it's a it's a combination of a lot of other things, right? Yeah, I think people want to believe that Web three is somehow going to be privacy centric, but it's not privacy centric by design. If anything, um, public, uh, I, I kind of dispute that Web3 has to involve blockchains, but I guess we can get there. Um, <laughs> but if you're talking about um, uh, systems that might interact with a public blockchain, for the most part, that's like having a you know multi-writer database that anybody can read from. And um, that that's actually pretty awful for privacy. Um, so uh, what can be privacy preserving about uh, quote unquote Web3 technology is just um, is 
if people can move away from some of the centralized platforms that we use today, where we all log in to the same website and we give this one company all of our data, and then we just kind of trust that company uh, to maintain the confidentiality of our data, which per the terms of use that we all agreed to, they are not obligated to really do. <laughs> and they will, you know, uh, both mine our data in order to personalize our experience, um, but they will also sell that data and they're allowed to do that, right? So simply coming up with viable alternatives that that fragment that um, helps protect people's privacy because they're not necessarily dumping their data into just one central spot. But I don't believe that there's a single solution that somehow becomes Web3, right? Decentralization mm -hmm. is an em emergent property of a larger system. And so what I work on is helping people to kind of re-decentralize the internet. And that means, you know, people having more websites and web rings and uh, stuff that made the internet cool back in, in I don't know, 2005, um, but with a better user experience uh, that allows people who are perhaps less technical to still participate um, and, and get the great experience that they're used to with a centralized SaaS company. Yeah, that is very interesting. You know, I was checking your website and I saw that, um, you know, your focus is also on that UX part, which is really missing in these um, price, privacy preser preserving apps. And it, it somehow is very focused around developers, but not mass adoption. So I'm very, very pleased to see that, that there is a, a concentrated effort there. And uh, which brings me to, uh, I think it kind of ties in with the, my uh, what was going to be my next question is like, you know, countries like uh, India and, you know, other um, Southeast Asian countries, I wouldn't say all of them, but, you know, we don't have as uh, rich of a history in terms of, you know, the counterculture uh, that existed in the West, um, you know, the likes of Tim Way, you know, and Ryan books and all. Uh, to them, maybe this is probably a broader sort of question like since everything is connected now in a global village i mean maybe is it easier now to um uh, you know something that could also be taken up by uh, people in those countries um, because traditionally their mindset has living in the states uh, uh, you know people won't be as acceptive you know uh, accepting of the fact um, do you see that mindset changing across the board or, um, that that is an onion to unpack of a question. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. I <laughs> no, went that's okay. uh, that's... too <laughs> overboard with that. I was uh, trying to keep it simple, but uh, my bad. No, it's a great it's a great question. I mean, I would I would not necessarily conflate counterculture, especially the cypherpunk counterculture, with the individualism of something like Anne Rand. I think they're totally different. But I, but yeah. <laughs> the um, the way I think about these things is that we're creating tools for communities. Um, and uh, the difference is just that those communities are are smaller. Um, and people are used to having small communities, right? There's some number uh, over which I think it's about 50 or so that you kind of lose track of how many friends you have and who you're communicating to. Uh, and we see that um, that happened on, on Facebook, you know, where people were inadvertently 
talking, uh, they're speaking as though they were talking to people at a small cocktail party or a house party, thinking I'm only communicating with, you know, my 30 closest friends that I see in my timeline every day. But really, you're broadcasting to everyone whose friend request you've accepted and your your comments can have much larger reach than you anticipate. And so you have a feeling of privacy, but it's a false sense of, of safety and security. Um, so in communities where there has been more of a focus on um, the collective and on um, on social consciousness around the group, uh, as opposed to whatever we call American individualism, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people do not believe in uh, privacy or safety for small, small groups. They certainly do. It's just that we've now created this one town square concept of the internet where we all get on one website and then yell at each other um, as though that's somehow an analog for how we live our real lives. And, and it's not. Um, I would encourage people to think about how technology has been used um, for or against uh, the people who are the most vulnerable in their population um, and to recognize that very often uh, things that you see happen to people that are less well off than you will eventually roll upstream and come to you. And, and specifically, I mean, like, you know, government programs and others um, where, uh, you know, people are forced to, say, give up information about themselves or and, and then, you know, potentially moved or aggregated or lots of different bad things can happen to people. Um, once once that door is open and the technology exists to mass surveil a populace, it's very easy to just point that same tool at more and more people. And so you just see a creep around the edges of who's included. And before you know it, it's kind of just pointed at everybody and where you end up with dragnet surveillance. Yeah, that's a very interesting point because there were recent in incidents in India where movie actors were targeted and, you know, their information was made public and all of that without any consent or anything like that. So uh, I guess it's uh, all turning into, um, you know, sort of uh, it doesn't even matter, I guess, at this point, the geographical sort of demographics and ge geography, because, you know, the same kind of sur surveillance state tactics are used everywhere because it's easier. The tools are available, you know, purchasable and all those sorts of things. So great points. Okay. <laughs> I, absolutely. And, and you make you make a good point about um, consensually shared information. Right. I think that that's really at the crux of, of all of this is uh, consent and kind of personal control and just a, a feeling of of safety that you have. Um, you're not participating in something that you didn't uh, sign up for. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of crazy privacy technology uh, come out and everybody's kind of talking about, you know, even, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this as well with the kind of Zcash <laughs> relationship, I guess, like where, you, where they use zero knowledge proofs to actually encrypt data about transactions that are happening on that network, right? So you use this crazy privacy technology to not release information because you cannot trust that the information that you do release consensually will be held in confidence as you intended it to. And so at the root of all of this is a breakdown of trust in our institutions, um, which is, I believe, kind of perpetuating globally at, at this point. We've never been in such a situation where so many people uh, have so little faith in their institutions to act on their behalf. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's happening for sure. <laughs> um, so let me switch gears a little bit, Amber, uh, and uh, go on to your latest uh, efforts or uh, your latest startup. Uh, I believe um, it's called Clover, clover.io. Yep. And could you tell us a little bit about that as to um, uh, what it's what problems it's trying to solve uh, and what is it all about? Yeah, so Clover has come out of, um, as you mentioned before, uh, thinking about usability um, of applications that are not just data hungry SaaS, right? And I, I have maintained for a long time that the thing that, that the cypherpunks did worst <laughs> was um, convincing themselves that everybody, if they just were more educated, would think the way that they did and use the tools that they did and that it's just an education problem. And we see that in crypto and Web3 as well. Um, As long as we were to just educate enough people about why they should use these tools, they'll figure it out. Um, I don't believe that that's accurate. I think that people have specific problems they wanna solve, uh, whether it's they want to communicate um, their thoughts with the world and write a blog, or whether they want to organize a meetup with their friends in the neighborhood, those are the problems people want to solve. Nobody nobody wakes up in the morning and says, wow, I wish I could um, solve my own key management today. Like that's not, that's not the thing that, that people do. So we approach, um, so the way that we approach it is application first and saying, you know, what is the, what would you like to do here? You want to be more in control of publishing your own content. Maybe you want to move off of a blogging platform like medium because they're controlling your audience and they're, um, uh, possibly taking revenue from you and whatnot. Um, various kind of walled garden systems like Patreon, et cetera, you're looking for alternatives. You would love to run, uh, whether it's a web three version of that, or just a simply self-hosted version of uh, an application, even something as simple as WordPress, which people are probably familiar with as a blog, uh, no blockchain involved. Um, how can we make that so easy for you that you it's competitive with you signing up for the centralized platform? And the way that we do that is to make running the infrastructure that backs that application so simple that you basically don't know that you're doing it. Um, so we help people then host these applications and access them from a browser. So it feels like you're using uh, super six slick SAS. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Um, but really the infrastructure is running somewhere that is within your control. Um, whether we provide hosting for you that's private to you or whether you bring your own cloud accounts or whether you want to deploy on-prem to your business, uh, we can do all of those things. And then um, all of the traffic, uh, that the data traffic that goes between uh, the, the Clover platform and your infrastructure, that it happens directly and privately between your browser uh, and your infrastructure so that Clover as a company is not in the middle of that communication. And no one has really done that before. Um, it's some interesting, both architectural and business challenges to make it all work. <laughs> uh, but we believe in building uh, privacy conscious systems that help people um, run their own, make you know, run their own software simply. And I don't need to be in the middle of that data in order to be useful to you. Wow, that, that's pretty sweet, actually. Uh, so you are helping any end consumer run uh, any sort of applications 
uh, mostly price, privacy pres- preserving. Um, and this could be their own, uh, like if they run a cluster or like, you know, for, for a little bit dev minded to, uh, you know, normal folks who have say cloud accounts. And then, so does this, uh, does Clover just layers on top of the existing um, cloud infrastructure? Um, uh, I'm just trying to get a sense of how does it, um, uh, and I, I know it, it can uh, it can get into the, I can get into the, like, I, I won't be able to get into the too much weeds, but just um, imagining uh, the existing cloud structure is somehow uh, encapsulated and or or secured in a way, right? Yeah. So the cloud is great, and um, I've you know, I think another thing folks have done wrong <laughs> in trying to advocate for more privacy conscious software is to do things like sell boxes that you have to buy and put in your house, uh, which inevitably become obsolete. Um, and are difficult to maintain. There's a host of challenges there, but we have this great cloud infrastructure. It scales elastically. Why wouldn't we just use that? Um, So yes, if you wanna deploy a Bitcoin node to a home server in your basement on a Raspberry Pi or whatever, yes, we can help you do that uh, with a simple command and it runs, you know, the the Clover platform doesn't care and thinks that, you know, a home server is the same as the cloud. Um, But if you bring your own cloud account, you can, deploy there and then run your applications and access them via any browser. And um, it's, you know, in a way it's simpler because we just need a, an API token that's correctly provisioned and we can kind of manage the backend um, there. And by we, I mean the, the platform that's actually running in your browser, <laughs> not, not we as a company. So, um, and then yes, as you mentioned, you could do the same thing to de- deploying to a Kubernetes cluster in an enterprise environment all the way up, yeah. So you also are. I, I I've heard you uh, talk about in I think other interviews about the automation tools that you would be introducing, or you you guys have introduced in uh, sort of a DevOps toolchain for this um, decentralized application deployment. I, I thought that was pretty interesting, and nobody else was doing that. Um, yeah, thank you. Well, ideally, the DevOps pieces are all of the plumbing and hard work that we've done. And if we do our job right, it is mostly invisible unless you are a power user that wants to get into it. Right. Because the that's how you help people who are less technical be able to run these sorts of applications is you need to automate a lot of what would normally be considered a, a DevOps processes um, and being able to do that in a way that that runs mostly autonomously or with minimal intervention and phoning home to us is um, technically interesting and challenging, uh, but not as hard as one would think. There are other tools, you know, you can it's funny when I talk to some developers, they say, why, why wouldn't I just, you know, use HashiCorp Terraform? Like, well, because you know what that is, (laughs) but our entire audience is people who number one, don't know what that is. And number two, um, might want to say package up their application and move it quickly between hosts in a way that Terraform cannot do, right? There's no, actually no software to install with Clover. When I say it runs in the browser, it, it really, uh, it really does. Um, and that's, that's kind of cool. So there's a lot of unique things that we're doing there. And some of it's still kind of secret sauce. So I'll be cagey about it, but okay. it's, it's cool. <laughs> I wouldn't ask you. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, I think is wonderful. I, I'm, I'll, I'll be checking out your suite of applications uh, that you guys have on the site. 
and try to set up my own sort of uh, uh, cluster, small little cluster. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the application that we have right now that's in um, that's publicly available in a beta is Clover Code, and it's VS Code in the browser. Um, so there's environments for a number of popular languages, as well as some other projects, specific images like for Chialisp. Um, which I'm sure we can talk about a little bit more. Uh, but that's the application. The next step in this is that there'll be like a number of applications there, um, none of which will be created by us. They'll all be, you know, third party open source projects that we support. So there will be a marketplace of applications as well. Or that, that, that. Yes, but it, but actually an open uh, non-walled garden in that applications can onboard similar to how you might, you know, yeah. create a Docker image for your app for distribution. Um, you can create a, a Clover, um, we call them manifests, but uh, a, a little config file that allows your software to work with the platform. And then, you know, what you see on Clover.app is our specific curated list of apps that we are happy to present to you, but any anybody can use it to deploy anything. And we are not the, the main arbiters of that list. So that's yeah. actually decentralized. Got it. So just a place to like a registry for stuff like images and stuff like that, but it's totally open source. Yeah. And we, we maintain one registry, but we are not the canonical registry. Anyone else can maintain whatever other registry they would like. Uh, so now there is a, there's also a challenge, Amber, um, um, uh, in uh, when somebody says always UX security trade off. And if it's your secret sauce, I wouldn't ask you this question, but how are you sort of addressing that traditional or is it just a mindset in the past that, hey, uh, with better UX comes less security, uh, there is always a trade off. Is that somewhat true or uh, it's just a myth at this point or? Uh, I think if you do not actively plan and keep that at the forethought of your mind the entire time that you are doing product design, then absolutely there is a trade-off between usability and security. And I've given talks about <laughs> the entire topic. So I, yes, I would agree with that. However, um, I think that if we are as uh, designers and developers and uh, DevSecOps people, uh, if we are opinionated about how things are designed and put uh, users first um, and set defaults so that they are protective by default and you know not unencrypted by default as an example, um, then there is not necessarily as much of a trade-off. Uh, there are some things that, yeah, we've had, uh, it's sticky to design something like a an account recovery flow when people have to deal with uh, master passwords or seed phrases, like it's just a different flow that people are not used to. Um, there are bad ways to work around that. And there are good ways to work around that. You can look at what companies like LastPass and 1Password, for example, and Signal have done um, to, uh, to work on that problem. And I think we're starting to see more standardization around workflows there. And that's great. The worst thing you can do is either tell people you know, write this down and figure it out. And it's super secure, you know, secure security is your problem and um, make it hard for them or roll your own crypto. That's a bad idea too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. You know, so then the, yeah, this has always been a challenge and coming from that sort of front end UX sort of background. And I always felt it was more talked about, but there was no uh, concerted efforts I could see where, as you said, 
every flow is kind of has that privacy focus because somewhere down the lane there would be like oh but we need to you know uh, get access to that xyz data like that default thought uh, around users privacy is actually critical so this this is um, music yeah i mean wires. designing Designing systems with that principle of least authority, which is where the, the good name of that company came from, right, is um, what's important. So don't hold data that you do not intend to manage, right? Like ask yourself why you are collecting it. And we've gotten into this, why don't we all just create a data lake concept? Like just collect as much as you can and we'll figure out how it's useful later um, mentality that creates technical risk. It creates legal risk. It creates tons of risks. Um, so just collecting less data as, uh, as application creators is important. The challenge there becomes now you're competing with people that have all this like super rich telemetry data and you're now, you know, designing an application without user information, like it's the nineties. And so (laughs) what's where, what's cool about, um, more kind of modern systems that we're seeing emerging is we can start to push um, telemetry and analytics and machine learning even to the edges and to consumer devices and um, out to where we can get back interesting insights, but we don't have to take all the raw data necessarily. Um, so you see, for example, both Google and Apple now do their um, text prediction. Uh, when you type something in and it completes your word words, they figure that out on the local device. They figure out kind of what words you're trying to type and they, they will slurp information about what words you ended up typing back to the mothership, but they no longer send all of your text while you're typing it to the mothership. Uh, and it, it is a meaningful change in, um, in user privacy. Yeah, totally makes sense as compute devices. You know, there is a local computation that goes on. Uh, it could be much more secure as uh, rather than, you know, sending messages back home all the time. So, uh, yeah, I hope that future definitely plays out. And, you know, folks like you who are making a real effort on the ground and building these systems is, is fantastic to see. Uh, all right. So I am perhaps towards the end of the session, but I have this sort of another burning question for you is uh, you are in a unique position, Amber, in terms of you've uh, had some lot of industry experience, corporate experience, and then you moved on to the space. And then, the you know, there's two worlds that you have navigated, uh, you know, quite extensively for a while. So uh, in in current, uh, currently, I think maybe things are playing out. So my question um here is like, how do you see adoption uh, of these technologies into eventually into, um, you know, corporate sector? Because, you know, India, uh, I would say the government of India latest, like right now, they uh, they are trying to like, you know, somehow control crypto like the way US was. But then, you know, the narrative that doesn't get played out or the things that they are unaware of is, that this is a technology that can benefit the corporate sector too. So any thoughts on that uh, would be great. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of projects. This is this runs a, a gamut, which I used to, I guess, call a spectrum <laughs> from what you would consider 
enterprise blockchain problems, which are institution to institution um, use cases and challenges that are happening, which most normal people will never encounter, but continue to move forward. Um, you hear less about them in the press these days because people are just kind of building them and working on them, um, but they are still moving forward. So everything from central bank digital currency to um digitization around trade finance to uh, moving information about existing traditional securities and proxy voting, for example, onto a more um, distributed ledger sort of system so that multiple institutions who don't trust each other can all work together on the same data set. That stuff is continuing to happen. Then you have the um, investment and utility of uh, public blockchain assets, um, which in some ways, you know, some people want to um, become more used within corporates, right? Whether that's, I want to buy my coffee with Bitcoin, and that means a company now holds Bitcoin, <laughs> or whether that means I want to invest in you know, let's say Bitcoin, um, and I want my traditional institution to be my custodian. Those are wildly different things, but I think institutions are figuring out how to handle it. Of course, we've seen a ton of startups um, step into that space. And I think, especially within the financial industry, they're quite happy to have startups do that at an arm's length um, distance. And then eventually folks will get acquired. They'll just be B2B relationships, you know, um, as they're more able to interact with the ecosystem because of regulatory and legal issues kind of make it hard sometimes. Um, they step in and, and, you know, the rest is, is history. We've seen more and more of that. Um, but what you won't see, I think, is corporates somehow deciding that the fundamental case for censorship resistant global currency somehow benefits them. Like, I don't know why we keep trying to fight that fight. <laughs> like the whole point is that there's a system that exists outside of traditional um, regulated systems. And so trying to convince businesses that they need it is kind of silly, in my opinion. Um, that doesn't mean it's less useful. It's absolutely useful. Yeah, that's also, uh, I, I, I think with top down, uh, sorry, bottom up approach like that's happening right now where people are demanding it. And especially in India, where there are so many young youngsters, like one of the nations with the youngest crowd there and they are into uh, cryptocurrency, uh, not particularly for the right reasons or, you know, just, you know, but they are getting more aware. So, yeah, there is going to be an upward pressure to be able to absorb these sorts of technologies yeah. in a way. And uh, yeah, you did mention in one of your talks, I guess, where public chains would serve as like a sort of data point for people, uh, for, for, for corporates to, you know, if, if people have consented with something, uh, some, something along those lines, I don't know if I'm saying it yeah. completely, completely wrong, but, uh, yeah, that, that yeah, and I, like I do, good... I'm not saying just to, to be clear, I think that that is absolutely a, a useful thing. If people could have a wallet that has a number of attestations that they have, that they take with them from 
various public blockchain lands, you know, and they are able to bring that into an institution as a proof point that something that they say happened, happened, like I had this loan or I drove this car or whatever, that is super useful. Um, I, I think what I want people to understand is like where there is money to be made off of the system, corporates will figure out how to interface with that and provide their customers products that they want. That is completely different than the persistent use case that people need to pay each other online in order to get stuff done. And they don't necessarily want that transaction to involve somebody else. And so any intervention is kind of mm, unhelpful. Uh, Amber, so where can we, uh, where can the young developers in India uh, learn more about how to get involved with, uh, you know, building on Clover? Uh, where can they find you, uh, find you guys? And I also believe there's a testing um, um, uh, uh, sort of program that happens. And uh, yeah, if, if you can uh, uh, let us know where we, if, you know, folks can find you, that'll be awesome. Yeah. So we are on online and our main website is our main website is at clover.io and it's spelled C-L-O-V-Y-R. Io, and then our um, application marketplace, which right now is the, the Clover.code app, is creatively at Clover.app. <laughs> so that's where you can go to check those out. Um, there is uh, an environment for, uh, as you mentioned, the Chialisp um, project, which is the smart contracting language for the Chia ecosystem. Um, and uh, that one, I think if you go through the Chia website, they kind of have a blog about it and everything. And there's a link right into the environment um, from there. So from there, you can kind of get the gist about how uh, Clover code can be used for various blockchain projects specifically, mainly that um, when the environment launches, it's got an automatic on connection to a precinct testnet node. You've got all the command line tools that they have in their tool chain right there. There's some examples ready to go. And so that's the kind of thing that we can replicate for really any um, any not just a blockchain project, but I find that the ones with complicated tech stacks, we can help the most because they're the hardest to use, um, but really any open source project. So if you have a project that you would like to have a Clover code um, environment for, so other developers can contribute to your project very quickly, um, drop us a note and we can try to get one set up. Great. Uh, thank you, Amber. Thanks for coming on the show. I would love to have you again. This was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.